0: Welcome to X Chateau, Ex Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this
1: episode of X Chateau. Today, we're talking with Aaron Ridgway, who is the Regional General Manager Americas at Wine Australia, which is a trade association for Australian wine.
0: Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be here.
1: So I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a little context, especially current context, on where Australian wine sits within the larger world of wine at the moment.
0: The larger world of wine. It's a big world indeed. So Australia has had significant wine exports really since the beginning to the mid-1980s. It's a large country. It's a large landmass. Plus or minus, it's about the same size as the USA we crush about 2 million tons worth of grapes so smaller than the us in terms of production but for a population of 24 million people it's pretty substantial our exports are around 3 billion dollars in australian currency we export to over 150 countries we grow over 100 varieties and we have 65 different regions so I think it, to the extent that it's possible to talk about Australian wine, and we do that a lot where we we don't necessarily talk about American wine before we say wine from California or wine from New York State, but to the extent that it's possible to talk about Australian wine, one of the most notable things about it, I think, is is how diverse it is and how cool climates veritable deserts, ocean influences, wetter regions, hotter regions, drier regions, all kind of amalgamate into this really rich wine production environment. So, yeah, it's it's an exciting place to make wine, it's an exciting place to drink wine. Fortunately, it has a very strong kind of presence globally and yeah, I always say that there's still a lot to discover. We don't have an Appalachian system like Burgundy or a or a, a DOCG like what we have in Italy. So there are best practices around where certain things are grown and and 200 years of history to try to get the balance right. But you can't just pick up one book about Australian wine and be an expert. You have to visit, you have to taste, You you have to talk to lots and lots of different people. It's exciting. There's a lot to learn. So obviously, as you mentioned,
1: Australia has a very long history of making wine and some of the oldest vines in the world. And I'm curious, though, because the obviously you have that pedigree of making wines for so many years. And then in the 90s and early 2000s, they were often known as these kind of cheap and cheerful wines or very affordable. But a bunch of things have happened. Obviously, palettes have changed. We've seen inflation and things like that. I'm curious, in terms of the Australian currency to the US dollar, I'm curious on how these factors have evolved the market that is today from where it was maybe 20 years ago?
0: Good question. So I think Australia, again, a significant agricultural producer, large landmass, lots of competitive advantages when it comes to making a consistent, tasty product, whether it's wine or a number of other products. I think Australia, quote unquote, had its time in the sun. Yellowtail launched in 2000. Many people have forgotten this now, but it was the number one wine brand in the whole country. It had the, the true superstardom of a consumer brand that was an order of magnitude ahead of the second most popular wine label. So your term cheap and cheerful is definitely something that was applied to Australian wine. And I don't necessarily think that that application was unfair. A lot of companies, Australian companies, non-Australian companies, saw a consumer trend, saw something that had very, very, very fast uptake. People love to buy it. People love to sell it. People love to drink it. So yes, a lot of wines, particularly in the U.S. market from Australia, were once they manufactured, but certainly made according to that market demand and according to that flavor profile. Now, if you go back to the 1830s and 40s when the industry was getting started, there were also opportunistic approaches to establishing a category planting vines, making wine, making it a viable industry. But fortunately or not, a lot of those vines were misunderstood in terms of their long-term potential. So, vines, very much a cash crop, 150, 175 years ago. Some people were either silly enough or smart enough to leave a lot of those vines in the ground. Of course, Australia famously has been very minimally affected by phylloxera. There's still phylloxera there, but it's, it's in quite small, specific areas and didn't do anything like what it did in Europe towards the end of the 19th century. So, it's funny. It's almost like you've got these bookends that are really spaced out, where on the one hand, You've got these astounding old vine resources that are Mavedra, Shiraz, Grenache, Semyon, potentially Chardonnay, the oldest examples that are still living on the planet. And then at the very, very end of that spectrum, you have 15 or 20 years ago, this sudden turbocharging of the Australia opportunity or the the Australia experience. I think we're somewhere in the middle. I think like California, I think like France, I think like many grown-up wine producing countries in the world... It's possible to make volumetric wine that people just stack high, watch fly, love to buy and drink. There are these astounding examples that are much more rarefied and made in smaller quantities and and tell completely different stories. I think we're very much in the middle. We're somewhere in the middle of that continuum, but the interest is to describe a trend the interest is much more in the what's special what's different what's you know more toward understanding that rich history than more toward encouraging more of those entry point brands if you will
2: so just in terms of what happened to the entry point brands i think the reputation for australia was around high quality for very low price, right? So the Yellow Tails of the world, uh, I think even before that, maybe even Rosemount and and other brands were described as very high quality or the wines they produced were pretty high quality at, at low price. And then California had its moment with some of those things and Two Buck Chuck or Charles Shaw, the same thing. Did something happen? Was it the consumer that changed and went away from those? Or was it other Dynamics around the Australian market that change the market for those wines?
0: If you buy a $10 bottle of, let's say, Jacobs Creek Shiraz or Rosemount Chardonnay, the chances are you open it and it is a really good quality glass of wine. So, from a consistency and a supply chain management standpoint, Australia has a a very sizable advantage. I think, in terms of there being a change, I think there's Consumers always change. I sometimes think by the time we've we've finished off a really substantial piece of consumer research, something else has popped up that needs more discovery, more understanding, more analysis to try to figure out which direction we're going to go in next. I think if you look at the numbers, particularly brands like Yellowtail, Jacobs Creek, still incredibly strong in the US. Penfolds and some other brands that used to have a lower entry point have gone more premium in terms of their market position. I don't think the demand for those more affordable wines has gone away. There is now more demand for wines from Australia that cost more that need more scrutiny, that are worthy of more inspections. So just just for clarification, we're shipping about twice as much wine that sells over $10 a bottle now as we were in 2017. Now, would we like the overall numbers to be bigger than they are? Absolutely. But again, that shift to bottles that cost more than $10 is significant. There are entire appellations out there that are absolutely locked in terms of their price and they're potentially trending down. The only way to make their products more compelling is to just keep messing with the price and it's usually not, you're not able to grow the price. You have to just invest to keep it flat or you you need to heavily promote them and potentially lower the price. But, you know, so people still want tasty, well-made, inexpensive wine from Australia. They still want that from Bordeaux. They still want that from Southern France. They definitely still want that from Italy and California and elsewhere. What we found, it was a little bit paradoxical in the early 2000s when, when Aussie dollars, 2007, 2008, we were up almost a billion Aussie dollars. Let's call it $950 million in wines shipped. We're at about $450 million now uh, for the US, just, just for comparison. But there was something a little bit paradoxical going on at that time. At the very, very high end, there was something approaching hysteria anything that came from Australia that had a sizable price tag or even ultra high price tag sold out. It wasn't a question of, can we sell this? It's, have you got any more? Again, we had an incredibly healthy representation under $10 in grocery. We were selling a lot of wines, $12, $15, $18 a bottle as well. But again, to bring it back to this image of the bookends, almost like opposite ends of the field. (laughs) And the middle, if you look historically at healthy wine categories, it's actually all about the middle. If you look at Carneros, if you look at much of you know Central Valley, Northern California, if you look at the Loire Valley and Sancerre and Chablis and the creation of uh, Chianti Classico Grand Selezione, it, if you get the middle right, it's much more likely that you'll tell a coherent and compelling category story. What I think we're doing now is we're really building out the middle. We haven't said, okay, we have to employ cancel culture on inexpensive wines or we can't sell expensive wines. We've got to make our wines more competitive, which means lowering the price. No, I think we were lucky enough to have been touched 20 years ago and given our chance to stand on the podium and be the number one import category and have the number one consumer brand. We've certainly seen the picture change. And now we're in this position of, okay, well, what story do we want to tell? And we actually don't have to make something up and figure out how to talk about it. We just need to take stock of what we have. Old vines, 100 varieties, 65 regions, fantastic developments in sustainability and organic farming. We have brands like Okoda Barrels and Mount Mary and clonakiller and Penfolds that are on an absolute tear. At the supplier level, we need to figure out how to to help those stories get out. So, yeah, it's really about the middle, and that's uh, a big focus for our strategy, is to is to help grow the awareness of that.
2: And is that true for all markets? Because Australia is a big country geographically, but doesn't have a whole lot of people. And so most of your wine or a lot of your wine is exported. Is that true? And and what are the top export markets?
0: So the top export markets are United States, Canada, the United Kingdom. China was a big market for Australian wine, as you know, and as your listeners will probably know. There are some significant challenges there for Australian wine in particular. It's very unfortunate, but it is what it is. So our focus markets, yes, are North America, so United States, Canada, and the UK. We're growing in those three markets, which is wonderful to report. We quite often don't necessarily get alignment for our priority markets, our biggest markets, to be all trending positively, but we're up almost 30% in the UK. There are some political factors driving that, You know, some, some changes to the UK market that at the moment are very positive for Australian wine. And we're up mid-single digits in both the US and Canada. You asked an interesting question about, is the kind of demand or is the position the same in those different markets? And not really. 80% of the sales into the UK are bulk. And famously, the UK is a very price competitive market. If you're on promotion in Tesco, you're probably just having a whale of a time and shipping all the containers you can make. If you're delisted from a company like Tesco, or if you can no longer afford to pay the three pounds that gives your wine the spotlighting that it needs to get those incredible volumes, there's an old cliche. The UK is all the volume and no margin, and the US (laughs) is all the margin and no volume. So, Canada is probably somewhere in between. I think it's a provincially driven or provincially governed market. Several of the monopolies, probably three of the monopolies do about 75% of the total business. So, Australia has 24% market share up in Canada, which is fantastic. They love Australian wine, although a little bit behind the curve in terms of what's new and exciting. There's a lot more Fiano. There's a lot more Vermentino, Barbera, Dolcetto a lot more natural wine coming into the United States versus Canada. So, really, the focus in Canada is to try to help the market grow horizontally and vertically. We think that there are a lot of products that aren't available in Canada that that should be, and we're trying to support the agent community and the liquor boards up there as much as we can to understand the diversity of the offering. U.S., if you look at clippings from the past couple of years, we've had the privilege of some of the great wine writers in the U.S., really stopping and paying attention to the Australian category. Letty T recently writing about Cabernet from Margaret River. Eric Asimov published a, a series of articles in 2018 looking at very different aspects, you know, natural wines from the Adelaide Hills, Cabernet and Chardonnay at the higher end from Margaret River, Nebbiolo from the Yarra Valley, which was, if you go back 5, 10 years ago, even at the boom, the true boom for Australian wine in the US, we wouldn't have bet our mortgages on these major publications picking up those lenses as they did and really try to look at the category in interesting ways and from different angles. The one global message I think that we reinforce no matter what the market is, Australian wine is diverse and Australian wine is exciting. It can be very beneficial when a perception about your product or a perception about your offering is really easy to pick up and grasp. We are actually very comfortable for the need to have a longer and a richer conversation about Australian wine ears. We've we've had the sort of catchphrase, sunshine in a bottle, cheap and cheerful type fish hooks into our clothing. But we feel that now is the time to just pause and really try to understand what's special and different about Australia. And touch wood, we feel as though the audience is there for that story to start to come through a bit more loudly and a bit more proudly. So you
1: mentioned, obviously, the diversity of all the different regions as well as the different grapes. I'm curious because in the US, specifically California, we've struggled with like There's We're pigeonholed into what people think of as California Cabernet or California Chardonnay, heaven forbid. People have a very specific conception, especially abroad. And I can imagine that you guys have a similar thing in terms of people maybe have associated a lot of wines on the shoulders of Barossa in terms of what Barossa Shiraz is, but there's so much more to it. So I'm curious on how do you kind of get away from that country kind of level in dive into the unique and diversity of both the region as well as all the you know, other varieties that are grown there outside of the main you know Shiraz and Cabernet and the Big Seven that are kind of also popular here in California.
0: We It's funny, a few years ago, Terry Thies gave the keynote address at the International Pinot Noir Celebration, and he basically threw demystifying under the bus and said, I'm all about remystifying. I, I thought he put it in a really pretty way that it's actually not about making it simpler. It's actually about making it more complex so that you reward scrutiny more with more information, more material that's compelling and really worth digesting and, and thinking about and reflecting upon. So you guys have really good questions. One of the ways we do it is we show Shiraz. We don't, we don't pretend that our calling card doesn't exist, but we find ways to educate about Shiraz that are different and that are interesting. We do what's called Global Comparative. So it's a seminar series that we have where we pick a variety, whether it's Shiraz, whether it's Chardonnay, whether it's Pinot Noir. We've actually got one coming up in May that's Cabernet Sauvignon. Now, it's all blind. There are 12 wines. About eight of them are from Australia, different regions of Australia. And then the balance are from elsewhere in the world. And it's not about pulling back the curtain and saying, whoa, I bet you thought this was left bank. But it is about, again, it's really stopping and just having that really careful conversation. What does it smell like? What do you think the soils were? Is this wine extracted? Does this wine have Britannomyces? If you're only approaching it as, well, it's big and fruity, so it's got to be Napa, or it's, it's rich and extracted, so it's got to be Aussie, well, you're missing the point. It's actually not about winning and naming something because of where it's come from and because of a set of characteristics that you feel are inferior or sloppy or whatever it might be. It's really about sitting down and understanding what's in the glass. When I'm presenting a wine, and this has happened, when someone's turned the label around and seen that it's 15% alcohol. I said, well, well, there you go. That's that's Aussie, right? Well, most Barolo from the 2009 vintage is 15% alcohol. And I don't need to hate on Barolo to make that point. But I think plenty of wine out there, has alcohol at a certain level, as long as it's got acid and balance and a very defined set of characteristics that make it relate to where it's from and how it's made, the alcohol actually doesn't matter. It's kind of secondary. So, Yeah. So that's one of the ways we do it. We also have very specific experiences for people to come to, whether you're the wine director at a really busy restaurant, whether you're a retail category manager, if you're a journalist, if you're hosting a podcast, if you are really curious about a wine from Australia or a region from Australia. What what Wine Australia tries to do is really match the content and match the level of detail that that person might be seeking to customize it as much as we can. We did a couple of destination trade education conferences in Lake Tahoe in 2018 and 2019. And that was really about the time that it takes for someone to fly down to Australia. It's usually 10 days to two weeks. Everyone's busy. It's hard to get away. We also really wanted to stand out from... Other trade organizations and say, all right, we're just gonna we're gonna pick a part of the country where wine actually isn't made. But it has a connection to nature and it is gonna have this kind of meditative, busting out of routine quality where people can really come and really have that focus. So we invited 15 winemakers, a hundred people each year. We did it two years in a row. And man, was that an interesting conversation. I'm proud to say this that we do audience surveys after a lot of our education events. The most popular topic from Australia decanted, was Shiraz. And people didn't want to talk about it because it was confirming their stereotypes. They were generally blown away by the diversity, by the complexity, by the different properties that those regions and those clones and those winemakers were putting together to make these really interesting wines. So I think to short-circuit those stereotypes and to to cut through, Robert, your question was a really good one. I live in Napa, and I'm constantly trying to help my friends get past what they think is negative about Napa Cab. And I don't think anything's negative about Napa Cab. You just need to understand style. You need to understand houses. And then you've got this great valley to explore where Cabernet is made in these extremely different ways. We're trying to do that for Australia. We didn't have a Robert Mondavi to, to be such a champion at the level that he got to, but we see it as our role to to help people understand that the Yarra Valley and Coal River in Tasmania shouldn't be talked about as Australian wine. They should be talked about as cool climate, largely Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from different regions in the southern parts of Australia. So that's the message we're trying to push.
1: So at the San Francisco tasting, there was a Cabernet tasting of Australian wines and it, and it was really interesting because it was all across Australia and I found the differences to be extreme, not only because of how they're made, but also they stylistically where they were grown. But those were largely regions I, I knew about. And then I went upstairs and then I got to taste a lot of different things that were kind of were new to me. And that's it's not a lot of times where I get to taste a lot of new wines, right, or, and that I haven't really experienced before. And so I was really impressed by the wide range of grape varieties that were coming out of Australia, especially a lot of Italian grape varieties which was really surprising to me and then regions that i just like oh i got to look that up on a map i don't actually know off the top of my head where it's at i get, if I, my, my general guess is south australia because that's like half the country so i'm just curious on what are kind of the up-and-coming regions in terms of ones that you're trying to put some marketing behind in the u.s market to, to create awareness
0: on so we think that cabernet sauvignon in terms of varieties we think cabernet sauvignon and pinot noir are just painfully underappreciated in this market. We know that Cabernet is very popular among US wine drinkers and among US trade. We also know that a wide swathe of different profiles of Cabernet can be enjoyed. It's not just, you know, Bordelais, it's not just Napa, it's not just Washington State, it's not just wherever the case may be. So we are encouraging wineries from Coonawarra, Yarra Valley, Margaret River, in particular, not to say they're the only ones. There's also wonderful Cabernet being made in McLaren Vale and the Barossa Valley. But we're encouraging our wineries to present Cabernet to their importers, present Cabernet to their distributors, and just be a bit more confident about telling that story. I think a lot of Australian wineries, a lot of Australian winemakers have done it a little bit tough. They may have had really steady sales in the 2000s, and they've seen those drop away, or they have been trying to invest in this market. They found the three-tier system quite complicated. It's very competitive. There's consolidation among big distributors. Lots of reasons why it's not just sell a few pallets of wine and fly home and be happy. It is a challenging market in which to do business. So, our guidance to the wineries is again, with that confidence, with the idea that if, if you believe it's good wine and you're making it in a region where the vines are doing well, the grapes are doing well, and the wines are looking exciting and bright and people want to drink them, you've got to put those in the bag. I think there's been a reliance on Shiraz and Chardonnay, in particular, some other kind of legacy varieties as well. I think there's maybe been some misconceptions or some misgivings that, well, you know, if, if that's all we've really been successful in the past, then we should just you know, keep focused on Shiraz. And that's our calling card, right? Yes, it is our calling card. We have the oldest vines in the world. We do it extremely well when you pour the great Shirazes from Australia, Henchke Hill of Grace, Penfold's Grange, Clonic Hiller, alongside, you know, Shave and some other those wonderful expressions from the world. We have a reason to be really proud. But I think we have a reason also to be proud of, sparkling from Tasmania and Chardonnay from Margaret River and Adelaide Hills and the Yarra Valley. So again, consistent with this idea of complexifying or remystifying, we're definitely encouraging our wineries to, to show things that are different and not just show anything. I think there's you know, if you look at red blends, for instance, most of the red blends market in the US is more at the grocery end. Certainly, wines like Apothic, 19 Crimes, some of those brands that are scan in the red blend category, much more volumetric, much more um, established in grocery we do some work around education with red blends that's more directed at GSM and Cabernet Shiraz Merlot blends. Those tend to really hit their stride about $15, $20, so let's call it 15 to $30. So we're doing some education around those wines as well. If you walk into an independent wine retail shop in Australia, there will be a whole section for red blends, and it's not generally $10 and under. It's usually 15, 20, 30, 35, beautiful, supple, tend to be full-bodied, great with red meats, great for barbecue. Again, if you walk into a typical US wine retail shop, you won't see a red blend section the same way. And if there are red blends in there from Australia, they'll probably just be in the Australia section. So we think, and it's funny, all this talk we've done about Napa and about domestic wines here in the US, it's really interesting how Red wines from many areas of California and at lots of price points have quite a lot in common with a lot of red wine that is made in Australia. It's quite warm in California. The clones that are planted and the way water is used tends to guarantee or at least be consistent with a level of ripeness, a level of sugar, flavor intensity that is great for making full-bodied red wines. Consumers love them. Yeah, it's, it's still a question mark in my mind how I think we've still got some work to do to help consumers un- understand that if they like red wine from California at least most parts of California, they would probably like red wines from a significant number of regions of Australia, purely based on geography and farming practices.
2: And so you're trying to remystify what Australia wine is about. And your organization is called Wine Australia, which represents the entire country. So maybe you could just give our listeners a little
0: bit of background on what's the mission and purpose of Wine Australia. Wine Australia It's. We have a a fairly simple mission. We want to make Australian wine more competitive globally. And I'm not going to lie, we are wanting to raise the price. Now, if you're a consumer and you're tuning in, I'm not trying to make your bottle of wine more expensive, but it's a global marketplace and it's a competitive sector. We feel that Australian wine is well-priced on the global market, and we also feel like there is room on the global market for more premium Australian wine. So let's call that over 11 or $12 a bottle on a U.S. grocery shelf. For the U.S., we have three really simple priorities. The first is to be digitally nimble in education. So we have put on lots of events over the years. We were thrilled to welcome you guys to our tasting in San Francisco. We want to do in-person events at a point in time, and we absolutely believe in the camaraderie and the power of putting people together to appreciate a common product, which in our case is wine. But we went and created Australian Wine Discovered. If you go to AustralianWineDiscovered.com, it's the closest thing we believe – exists to a a customizable, fully downloadable, online wine education library. There are 26 modules organized by region, variety, and what we call topics. You can learn about fortified wine. You can learn about the Barossa Valley. You can learn about Cabernet Sauvignon. You can learn about Adelaide Hills. The presentations are 40, 50, 60 slides long. You can edit them yourself. You can attend a class that's run by someone else. You can be the presenter. There is an educator guide that you can download as well that gives you the talking points, gives you the history of the regional variety or the topic that you're presenting on. So that's a big deal for us. We've also tried to make the look and feel of our education materials really consistent with what we're putting out there with our trade and consumer marketing. So if you see a LinkedIn invitation to attend a webinar, or you get an email from wine.com talking to you about 90-point rated wines that they've just released from Australia, the creative, the look and feel of that material is quite similar. Our brand is Australian Wine Made Our Way. And if you've ever seen the kind of red, white, and black artwork, we think that that brand stands out quite nicely in wine marketing. And I'll tell you just a quick, fun anecdote. So the the agency that helped us put Made Our Way Together, they talked a lot to us about this concept called the sea of sameness. And if you look at a car ad, it's usually a fairly aspirational set of shots of a car driving through something that either looks like Lake Tahoe or Colorado. If you look at fast food advertising or clothing advertising, there's usually a set of norms that are incredibly consistent that go to create a set of positive messages for that brand or, or that segment. With wine, guess what? It's the bottle shot, it's the Misty Vineyard, it's the old chateau on the hill, and it's the 90-plus gold insignia somewhere at the top. You put those three or four modalities together and you have a wine ad. So they said, why don't we, and you, Think about unlocking something that's a little bit different. It's Australia, for goodness sake. Australia is not a, vist- a misty vineyard with a chateau on a hill and some mist. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? So, we started incorporating more drone photography. We started looking at where the desert meets the ocean. We started, you know, really getting into stains, tannin stains under fingernails. And we started to sort of merchandise the category in a different set of ways. And we love it and if you're scrolling through linkedin or instagram and don't look for bottle shots and those kind of more typical that more typical iconography it's going to look and feel quite different that's our kind of digital education and trade marketing side we also do business development so we help retailers small medium and large we help wholesalers regional and national and even single state We help chain restaurants, independent restaurants that have significant wine programs. We help them, whether it's staff education, whether it's programming. A wholesaler might say, you know, we've got an Australia book, but we only tend to put it out to market at the supplier level. We don't typically put it out there at a category level. How can we tell a category story with what we represent from Australia? Wine Australia, we have the budget, we have the team in place to... To help drive education in that space. And then the third of our three major priorities is market entry. So we're sitting at about 20% of all Australian wineries who make wine represented in the US market. And we would love to grow that to 25 or potentially 30 and beyond. We, we think that there is a lot of untold story material there. And we think that US consumers and Australia have a lot to discover that they don't even know they don't know. So that's a big focus for us is is to try to help more wineries get into market. Yeah, the made our way
2: sounds like that movement makes sense. Was the uh, advertising agency the same one as Burger King's? <laughs> I, think that, wow. I think they, uh, <laughs> they, they have the uh, have it your way kind of. model. No, but that obviously makes sense. It is a lot of sameness, and so
0: I will check. I will check. Yes. <laughs> but uh,
2: have it your way. yeah so for wine australia how do you define success
0: how do we define success boy you guys uh, you have great questions i i'm a really strong believer in organic growth if the category is growing low to mid single digits year on year and crucially as alluded to before if the percentage over ten dollars is healthy and moving in the right direction i think that's important i I don't think that the overnight success that takes 20 years and grows at 100% for a short time is, is really what the Australian category needs. I think that the US has 340 million people. Canada has plus or minus the same population as California, maybe a bit more. I think those markets need the time to internalize and appreciate what Australia has to offer. and I don't think it's going from here to here in five seconds would I like for for being able to shout from the rooftops? Would I like the growth to be quicker than it is? Maybe. But it's about building a healthy category. If you look at the work that Bob Mondavi did in the 1970s and onwards about really driving this message about Napa Valley and Cabernet from Northern California, we would not have the industry today if that guy pretty much didn't sign up for three decades of being incredibly consistent with his messaging and the way he built that community of people that really believed in an appellation and really believed in a style of wine. I think Australia is at that phase right now. We need to straighten up our spines and talk confidently and persistently about what we do and about what we do really well. If we grew 50% year on year for three years and then grocers started delisting us because consumers wanted the next hot product and they just pulled those pallets down and put something else on those end caps, that's not where we want to be. We think that with a population of this size and it's the number one wine market in the world, we think that there's space for a very, very healthy and organically growing Australian category into the next 10, 20 years and maybe beyond. We have a little bit of a an internal navel-gazing conversation as well. Is Let's say we're around for one lifetime. You've got to remember after the Second World War, Burgundy created a law to make past two grand because they needed the flexibility to make red and white. The laws were preventing them from rebuilding Western Europe after the war, and that change led to a new wine style. And gosh, if, if we were buying 1985 Burgundy 25 years ago, we would have been buying it for a few euros a bottle. So in the grand blip of wine, even just to look at the 20th century, there was extraordinary change. I think now, if the Australian category heads in the right direction from here... 25 years, 50 years, 100 years. We don't know what it's going to look like, but it's really our job to just pour that cement now and say, how do we set this up to go in the right direction? And, and we think that we've got the stories, the wines, the people to propel it that way.
1: So if you had to pick one category that you think that you believe Australia is dominating in, in the US, which category would you call it as like your strongest current, your foothold in the market right now? I'm
0: going to be a meanie and ask if I can nominate two. <laughs> sure, go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Look, num- number one is natural wines. I think that Eric Asimov turned over a very big leaf and brought a lot of people to what Australia is doing on natural wines. Not that he was the only one, but that the feature that he did was terrific. Look, I, I think the vibrancy, the the strength of character and the experimentation and the willingness to be different and to do things differently is... Absolutely incredible. And it is just incomparable to anywhere else in the world. I think a lot of, certainly a lot of my career in the wine industry, I've, I've tried to understand Australia's place relative to elsewhere in the world. And, and I think it's, it's really smart to do that. You, you should understand where you fit and why it's so important that Shav is the 15th generation in his family or why it's so important that the work that Bob Mondavi did in Napa. I have to say with producers working naturally in Australia, there is no global comparison. And that is really exciting to think about. Five years ago, definitely 10 years ago, but maybe even five years ago, it just wasn't... I couldn't have said that. I wouldn't have honestly been able to say it is truly contributing to the world of wine in ways that I believe are not replicated elsewhere. I think that's really exciting. I want to give a big shout out as well to the way producers are innovating. If you look at brands like 19 Crimes... Penfolds releasing the California collection, some of what Australian producers are doing with carbon neutrality, experimenting with packaging that has very, very low impact on the environment, you're going to see a lot more out of that space from Australia. So I think yeah, if I'm allowed to provide two, I know you asked me for one, but definitely that's um, it's really worthy of consideration. The way AR was used initially to establish the 19 crime story and then the line extension with California the addition of a rosé to kind of take the brand in a new direction is incredibly exciting and that's an Australian brand and an Australian story and an Australian marketing initiative which which I think is exciting and so you talked about laying the foundation and that long-term growth
2: and at the same time talked about diversity experimentation all this innovation that's happening and they're not necessarily different but I'm kind of curious to get your thought on how important do you think is the pathway to almost developing new classic wines from Australia? Is that a foundation to say, hey, Australia has traditionally been Barossa Shiraz, but now there's other classic wines that anyone like us who are wine students have to study, right? Whereas all the diversity or the Fiano and from Australia and all that, as someone who's has to study wine or take exams, it's like, well, that's not testable. <laughs> as a consumer, I think it's exciting. But as a and I'm wondering how you think about that difference between laying that foundation, if if laying the bricks of longer term classic wines or new classics, or experimentation diversity
0: is better. I don't know if I'll be able to answer superlative. I don't know if it's better or not better. But I let's pick a brand like Acota Barrels. So I love your use of the term new classic. It's not a term that I've used or that we use. But if you look at something like Acota Barrels, it is a relatively new brand. It's only about a decade old. It's incredibly unfortunate. The terrace passed away last year, much too early. But he is probably a neat depiction of, it's one way of your answering your question to look at him. So he was a highly trained and highly skilled commercial winemaker. He made wine for the monopoly in Sweden. He was responsible for tens of thousands of cases of Chianti, among other products, when he worked in Sweden. He worked for the Hardys group in South Australia, I think it was Tintara, their winery down in McLarenvale. He worked for Two Hands Winery, which is in the Barossa, but also makes wine in McLarenvale. So you've got a punk rocker, with an unbelievably methodical set of commercial appointments on his resume. And then he buys a vignette in the Adelaide Hills in in an area that we call the Basket Range. We only really call it the Basket Range because of the attention that he brought to that part of the world. And then he made these absolutely beautiful wines. Now, a lot of winemakers are influenced by him. But let's not forget that he was influenced for his entire career by other winemakers and by paradoxically, it was only by mastering a very scientifically rigorous set of commercial winemaking fundamentals that he was then able to turn around and make this weird 12% alcohol Grenache called Fagazi from a vineyard of 80-year-old vines down in McLaren Vale. So I think some of those wines, Peter, are just not quite as far along the continuum as wines like Henschke Hill of Grace, as wines like Penfolds Grange. You've got to remember, Penfolds Grange was only made first vintage in 1951, you know, even Hill of Grace. 1970s-ish was when it started being called Hill of Grace on the front label, even though the first vines in that vineyard are from the early 1860s. So, to come back to this concept of time, I don't think you're going to be doing a module on Australian Fiano as a wine student anytime soon, but where is Fiano from Australia on that continuum, will we continue to see it planted? Will we continue to see it evolve into something like the Sauvignon Blanc or something like the dry white that you taste when you get to a Napa winery, like it's a almost like a house white wine for for someone? Or will it will that permutation build up even more? And will Fiano from Australia truly become a thing? Truly become its own category? I think we're a little too early on that continuum to tell. Look at a winery like Clonakilla, located in the Canberra district. Dr. John Kirk, 1971, plants Shiraz. His son comes along in the 1990s, man of the cloth. He's retiring as a priest, devoting himself to winemaking full-time, plants Viognier, goes to Hermitage every year, meets Chave, meets Jaboulet, meets those kind of old guard from Tan and Hermitage, comes back, makes Australia's benchmark Shiraz Viognier. But it's, it's only a relatively recent story you might still call Clonicilla a new classic, whereas the the Granges, the Hill of Graces, the the Semions from Bruce Tyrrell up in the Hunter Valley, some of the fortifieds from the turn of the century, over 100 years old now, are uh, are more aligned with this kind of history, this evolution, which is the second half of the 20th century where Grange is created, the Grossed vines are planted up in the Clare Valley. Eden Valley gets going with the Henschke family story and things like that, or consolidation around Cyril Henschke and now Stephen, who's who's the, the chief winemaker there now. Now you've got this really interesting thing where it's revolution, and it's not tossing out everything that we've done before, but Okoda Barrels didn't happen by accident. It had training and experience behind it. It just happens to be an incredibly contemporary package and kind of helping pull the category in a new direction. It doesn't say the entire category has to follow Okoda Barrels, But what would it look like if you're a student of wine in five years or 10 years or 20 years? Maybe the tasting that you sit down to do is something like the new classics of Australia. And and there is Fiano in there, and there is Barbera, and there is, goodness, you know, so natural wines or whatever that might look like. So just one last tangent here. So with Australia being
1: in your opinion, pushing on world-class natural wines. Do you see Australia going to help define that? Because you're starting to see this happen in France and some other places where they're starting to define what natural wine means. And honestly, it's a very squishy topic and having some guidelines wouldn't be a bad thing, in my opinion. I'm just curious on your thoughts because that could help establish, decree it that Australia is you know leading that way.
0: Boy, that's a tricky, balance to find, because I agree with you on the one hand that a set of criteria or a a set of assumptions that people agree on about what it is or what it isn't and what it is, is potentially beneficial. You've got to remember something about the Australian character, though, is this unshackled, highly experimental approach. So we owe some of what's exciting to that absence of regulation if that makes sense. It's not about demanding the freedom to make a bad wine if you got out of bed and wanted to make a bad wine. (laughs) But if you taste the wines of James Erskine at Yauma, if you taste the wines of Timo Mayer down in the Yarra, or if you taste Taris' wines, you are tasting wines that it's impossible to argue that they're not made well. I guess probably my personal view, maybe I should preface this, my personal view would be, yes, I'm, I'm supportive of a set of standards that that help to address bad wine or that act in a positive way as a to the extent that it's a trust mark or a certification that, yes, this wine is a member of a group of products that are made properly and world-class, amazing. I'm not going to lie, though. I think that the freedom that not having an appellation system has given us is part of the reason why the Australian category is so exciting. You've got Brash Higgins down in McLaren Vale, with his amphoras and his crazy semions and Nero and and those wines that he makes, he was a wine director from Chicago working the floor in New York City restaurants. So again, he was the guy that brought this incredible training, Brad Hickey. He brought this incredible training to this incredible absence of regulation. So look, there's something to be said for both sides. I think the efforts in places like the Loire Valley to consecrate the style, to consecrate the approach are really positive and really exciting. But at the same time, there's just something about going for a walk with a winemaker in Australia, and he or she is just going to take you somewhere really interesting. And part of, I think, why that's interesting is because they went and got all this training and they have all of this skill, and then they just turned away from all that and did whatever the heck they wanted to do. And A lot of what we're seeing coming out of that sort of emancipatory journeyman, journeywoman style work is one of the most exciting things about the wine business, I think, anywhere in the world at this point in time. Great. So
1: of the various techniques you've used to promote Australian or Australian wine, what have you
0: found to be the most effective? So getting 100 people a year up to Lake Tahoe, two years running, was very effective, and I. Don't look, I it wasn't cheap to do that, it wasn't stress free to do that. But by the time those hundred wine trade guests came away from Decanted year one and year two, it's my hope, I think it's my belief that something had fundamentally changed in them about their understanding of wine from Australia. The fact that we could have four days to condense as much as possible those really important messages, those really important under set of understandings about Australian wine for that audience. I think when you asked before, what does success look like? What are, what are the most effective means? That's about as effective as it gets. You take away the distractions. It's not just a 90-minute seminar with six wines, and then you got to go downtown and do inventory. You can go back to your room and reflect on those wines. You, you know, we had all these crazy, you know, we had open mic and Tara's DJed at a late night, we did a version of his, because he, he bought an old church and he opened a pizza restaurant called Lost in the Forest. Everything with him is named after a song. So we had him do a Lost in the Forest pop-up in decanter starting at 10 o'clock at night. So he was a, he was DJing, pouring his wines, threw out these wood-fired pizzas and you know other bits and pieces. So it's created a much more spiritual connection versus just a wine tasting. So I think the benefit of being able to do activities like that is you can really mess with the formula and you can really force change in wine professionals and trade professionals and also journalists if they give you the time and then you give them the experience to, to truly clear away everything they think they know and show them something different. Look, I think our trips to Australia are incredibly effective. They're obviously on hold at this point, but a lot of the folks that have come back have done great things in support of the category. I think as well, a lot of the alumni work that we do, whether it's people at Decant, uh, who visited Decanted or people who have visited Australia, people like Paul Greco at Terroir in New York, Kate Weber, who's a group restaurant wine director up in Massachusetts, those people that are out there and those are the leading lights, the voices that people in our industry follow and respect. When they start talking about the Australian category, we can almost just shut up and take five paces back and be a participant in what they're doing because they are so knowledgeable and and so passionate about the Australian category that we're fortunate to to have them as our supporters. And it's actually about giving them the microphone versus us always being the ones doing the talking.
1: Makes sense. And I'm curious on how your marketing techniques have varied by country. Obviously, you mentioned China, UK, Canada, US. Are they all relatively similar or are you really kind of dialing it in per country?
0: Dialing it in per country. That's a great question. In The US, we do uh, the three sort of priorities I mentioned before, digital education, business development, and market entry. Those are fairly consistent. They manifest in different types of activity. But for Canada, for instance, Australian wine, much more market share, but not quite as ahead of the curve in terms of new products. So we've built a program called Explore. We're actually pushing the registrations out for Explore next week. And both in Canada and the UK, wineries can sign up to It's a a three-month campaign in each market, so three months long in Canada, three months long in the UK. And Wine Australia basically spends that three months marketing wineries to the agent and importer community in those markets who might be looking for Australian products. So we go out to all the agents and say, guys, guess what? You've got about 17% of Australian wineries in your market. All of these wineries are looking They've all said they want to be in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta. So we talk to those different audiences in those markets. We do information sessions. So on the one hand, we teach wineries all about monopoly pricing, lead times, what the major publications are, just scores matter. So we, we give them all of those news you can use, all of those trade toolkits. Then we do agent briefings. So we say, this many wines from the Yarra Valley have signed up. This many from the Barossa, this many from Claire. Really excited to welcome these producers from Tasmania who are interested. Gosh, there's even ones from the Granite Belt in Queensland if you want to really be out there. So we do all of that B2B. That's B2B has become much more important for us as our event programming has declined. And that's okay because with digital education and a really structured approach to business development and market entry, we kind of have the products ready. We just now need to put them out there in the right way. So Canada, as I said, it's about helping the monopolies maximize their assortments and not always, okay, we're looking for a $20 cabinet because this one's slowing down. Can we give them the education that they need to be getting new and different and exciting things into the assortment as as well as just managing the one in and one out that they need to do. UK it's very much about kind of white glove fine wine trade. We don't do a lot of consumer in the UK, we work with companies that have consumer. So we work with retailers that have big email marketing functions, retailers that are doing virtual tastings, we organize tastings for them. China it was very much focused on consumer. Chinese consumers are still developing a baseline understanding of, of what wine actually is from a Western serving and consuming standpoint. So those are just some variations. Germany, we do mostly trade education. We've got an MW, Thomas Curtius. He came in he became an MW in 2019 that does a lot of education for us. We have two MWs on our team actually in the UK. So they support our education activities in there and also in um, continental Europe. So it sounded like the UK and China were the opposite, China being
2: consumer, UK being very trade-focused. Why? What drove the difference?
0: Well, we're a small team globally, and the UK is a very expensive market to change sales above 10 or 11 pounds a bottle. So with one Australia's handful of team members, us really being able to make a fist of changing the number as we've managed to do in the UK. Remember, I talked about the, the growth in premium exports to the US. For us to achieve that in the UK is absolutely beyond us from a financial standpoint. So, we've got a couple of masters of wine on the team and one or two others supporting. The strategy has really been about putting on the right education sessions, developing the right education products so that the a kind of small group of very powerful people in the UK, which I think that market is more governed by than than the US and, and certainly Canada. We're trying to grow awareness and appreciation with a with a smaller group of people. In China, we had the benefit of tens of millions of consumers just absolutely turning onto and loving Australian wine. So we found that we could put together, especially with the benefit of Australian wine discovered, we could put together a network of educators that just had these massive consumer audiences. China is so far ahead of the curve in social media and digital and social media marketing. We don't get to see a lot of it, but we hired an awful lot of very clever Chinese specialists to help us deliver those education messages. And it's not to say we ignored trade. We have a fantastic relationship with Alibaba and some other companies that were doing really exciting things in retail. But our messaging was really simple. Wine from Australia is great. Australian wine discovered. All of the translation of the modules has been finished. So consumers trade, but consumers just showed absolutely extraordinary demand, and they actually pushed the price of Australian wine per liter several months over that of France to be the number one supplier by price per liter into China. So, like it or not, like it, the demand was there, and it was extraordinary. So. We definitely had trade education products as well, but they were secondary to importance in terms of developing the consumer. So
2: for Australian wine in general, what's the one misconception that you would like to change or dispel? (laughs) Is this thing
0: on? Um,
1: (laughs) Take your time. Sorry, we, we've been editing or we've been editing outline because you covered a lot of the, the talking points already. So but we had one section. I was like, I'd really like to know this one question. So we added that. I apologize. We didn't have that in advance.
0: The one misconception I would like to manage away is really that Australian wine can be reducible to that very piece of terminology. I don't know if this will happen in my lifetime, but if we ever got to a place where it wasn't Australian wine, it was even Cabernet from Australia or Margaret River wine or Barossa Valley wine. There are different chunks of semantics that we could explore, and I'd love to shoot the you know what with you guys on this, you know, <laughs> maybe over a glass. But yes, I think the the persistent misconception is that Australia is soluble into just the, these really simple talking points. Oh, you know, like Aussie Reds. Well, hang on a second. We touched on Barolo a little bit before. I live in Napa. There's plenty of 15% alcohol wine in the world. So let's just have a funeral for that very superficial set of understandings and start to talk about red wine from Australia. Where would you lo- like to talk about it coming from? What varieties would you like to talk about? What methods of production? What oak? What clones? What bome levels? Or what bricks levels? Those types of things. I think, again, to come back to If you took the 1982 vintage away from Bordeaux, Bordeaux would look very different to today. If you took the Judgment of Paris away from California wine, California wine would look very different to today. So where is that seismic moment for Australia that is about the, oh, crap, I'd better approach this more rigorously and with a bit more nuance and really start to break this down and develop a baseline? That's where we want to get to. If we want to keep calling it Australian wine, if that's what success looks to us, fine. But we don't call it American wine. It's Riesling from the Finger Lakes. Look at Oregon. You know, look at Willamette. Beautiful, exceptional, terroir-driven, single-pocket, Van corridor-influenced or not. I think Australia can get there. I think Australian regions can get there. And some really cynical people who don't know what they're talking about say that U.S. consumers need, to, need things to be simple. They need it to be easy to understand. Absolute nonsense. I'm sorry, you do not have a fine wine market as as exists in this country if consumers just want simple. No way. Look at Jura. Look at Carneros, Healdsburg, Fort Ross Sea View, look at natural wine, look at food, look at independent film. Americans don't need things easy. That is, that is the biggest misconception of all, I, I think.
1: There's nothing simple about our AVA system in the fact that they can be nested, spread across multiple counties. Like, there it is a lot of complexity in those things. So, yeah, okay. One misconception is that you, you can boil down Australian wine into one thing. That's a great one. So, Aaron, with every guest we always ask them for two parting pieces of wisdom. And the first one is a lasting trend. What do you think is a lasting trend for
0: Australian wine? Diversity and discovery. So you will see more of a building out of varieties other than Shiraz and Chardonnay over time. And I don't mean to hate on Shiraz and Chardonnay. I want the quantities of Shiraz and Chardonnay today to be steady, if not slightly increasing. But you will see more Pinot Noir more Riesling, more Sauvignon Blanc, more Sémillon, more Fiano, more Barbera, more Nebbiolo. There will be more of a maturing and more of a place in the global world of wine for more exciting varieties from Australia. That's a lasting trend.
1: And on the flip side of that, what do you think is a fizzling fad for Australian wine? What
0: is going the way the dodo bird? Critter labels, like cultural labels that play on cultural cringe or um, kind of facile Visual gimmicks, Trump lawyers—you know that kind of thing. Australia still exports bulk wine, but nowhere near in the same quantities as ten or fifteen years ago. Australia does make wine, as we talked about at the start of this podcast, incredibly competitively for two bucks fifty to five bucks a liter, and five bucks to seven bucks fifty a liter. And no one is disrespecting that. But the future of Australian wine is in some of those higher price points. So. I would say a fizzling fad is, yes, just the, the opportunistic, funny, quirky, for the sake of a, a Stack High Watch Fly brand, we will see less of those over time.
1: Okay, I hope I didn't seed that fad with my uh, dodo bird comment, but anyways. <laughs> 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 well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to record this episode. You gave us a ton of information for ourselves and for the listeners. And I want to thank you for your time. Thank
0: you, guys. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.